Hello. I started today like I do just about every day. I get up, usually feeling a little tired and bleary. Then after a coffee, I I take a deep breath and do 10 minutes of strenuous stretching and straining, planks, side planks, leg lifts, even now a few press-ups. By the time I've finished, my heart rate is up and it's time for the second stage of my daily routine, either a 5k run or 30 minutes on the exercise bike. My workout is essential to my well-being, and the older I've got, the more essential it's become. So, as an addict, I've been fascinated to read a book exploring the history of exercise, a book that combines in-depth historical research with powerful personal testimony, a book which takes the author, a middle-aged fitness freak just like me, from New York to Rome and from Sweden to Olympia, the site of the original Olympic Games. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I'm delighted to welcome Bill Hayes to Bridges to the Future. He's the author of Sweat, A History of Exercise. Bill, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thanks for having me. Have you done your exercise today? I am going directly from here to the gym where I will do a workout and maybe even take a swim. Are you one of these people, I mean, it is addictive, isn't it, that if you go a day without exercise, it's not just you might feel a bit kind of not as physically alive, but it's not great for our well-being, is it? Uh, You're right. I mean, I think every day one should move. Think of exercise as synonymous with movement. So even if it's only taking a walk, there you go. You got your exercise in for the day. But we can get a bit obsessive, can't we? That I mean, I, I realise now, and I think this is kind of why I use the word addict, that even though I'm absolutely sure I could go two or three days without any exercise and it wouldn't have any effect on me at all, I've got so addicted to it now that if I were to go two or three days, I, not only would I be a bit depressed, but I'd be convinced I could see my body deteriorating before my eyes. <laughs> we can get a bit obsessive about it, yes. But that was true even in ancient Greece, as I discovered. There was the ancient Greek equivalent for gym rats called palestra addicts. So there were gym obsessives and gym rats many thousands of years ago. Right. It's the feedback, isn't it, between the physical exercise and the hit that you get in in your brain. Anyway, let's get to the book. It's a great book. I I want to start with the story of the book, Bill, because it it was a real stop-start project, wasn't it? It really was. I worked on this book over about 10 years The idea first came to me at a gym, appropriately enough. I was on a Stairmaster, just about to start my cardio. And for some reason on that particular day, I paused for a second, looked out at the gym floor, all these people, men and women, lifting, you know, doing pull-ups, chin-ups, yoga, bozu ball. And I just thought, how did we all end up here? (laughs) And if I were to trace a line backward in time, where would I land? And it was really just started with that simple question. I got off the Stairmaster, went to the library, thinking I would find a book that would answer that question, and I didn't. And that's really when the idea to write Sweat began. I ended up doing a lot of research and travel. I got a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and traveled around the world, practically. But yeah, I put it aside for several years, really at the same time that my late partner, Oliver Sacks, got his terminal cancer diagnosis and didn't return to it, to the manuscript for Sweat, for about three or four years. 
And then finally, the pandemic actually gave me the, uh, the time to go back to the manuscript and complete it, time alone here in my apartment. And there's a moment in the book where you describe poignantly that towards the end of his life that Oliver still, for as long as he possibly could, still wanted to try to get some exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And exercise was really part of our relationship. We would go swimming together two or three times a week. He was a great swimmer, of course, open water swimmer, but also lap swimmer. Once he got in the pool, <laughs> you couldn't stop him. And also working out at the gym. And he kept working out and swimming almost until the end of his life. And when he couldn't go to the gym or the pool, he'd stride up and down the corridor or even when he was confined to bed, you know, doing just movement. And he sort of sardonically called it exercise for the dying. But it was incredibly inspiring in so many ways. Yeah, well, he was a really amazing man. Now, the nature of the book is interesting, Bill, because it's called A History of Fitness. Mm -hmm. Yet more than the first half is largely about one man, Girolamo Mercuriali. You'll tell me whether I got that right in a moment. But you spend more than half the book talking about this guy. And then once you finish with him, from the 16th century to now, no one gets more than kind of two or three pages. It's I'm sort of interested in it. It's kind of the first half feels like a biography and the second half feels like a short history. <laughs> well, I think, you know, part of the story of the book is my own obsession with Mercuriali, Girolamo Mercuriali. He was a 16th century physician living in Rome, personal physician to a very prominent cardinal, Cardinal Alessandro Farnese. And he wrote what is considered the first comprehensive book on exercise called De Arte Gymnastica. I would have known nothing about Mercuriali or even his book probably were it not for a librarian here in New York at a rare books room. She introduced me to Mercuriali and the book itself, showed me a pristine first edition from 1569. I opened the book to one of the many engravings, woodcut engravings. This was of two pairs of wrestlers. It just captivated me. Something inside me right away knew, I want to know more about this book and this man. I turned the page and realized the entire book was written in medieval Latin. I couldn't read a word, except I could make out what seemed to be the Latin word for exercise. So, yeah, I tracked down an English translation. I tracked down the translator himself and uh, ended up kind of retracing his life story, what led him to write De Arte Gymnastica and what happened to him and the book afterward. So that becomes, you're right, one of the main narratives in the book, the story of Mercuriali and De Arte Gymnastica. And what I found fascinating there was this is part of the more general Renaissance project, mm -hmm. which is looking back and rediscovering the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, as personal physician to Cardinal Farnese, he had access to the Vatican Library and to the Farnese Family Library. And my impression is that Farnese was a fairly young man, fairly healthy, and maybe Mercuriali had a lot of time on his hands because he dug into the stacks at the Vatican Library and the Farnese Library deciphering, translating, reading, studying the works of the ancient thinkers and physicians, Hippocrates, Galen, Plato, and reading what they had written about the body, health, and exercise. And it was his aim, really his dream, Mercuriali's dream, to revive the ancient Greek art of exercise 
And it was nothing less than that. And it's interesting, isn't it, that often people, including him, they get anatomy badly wrong. They they get what's mm. happening badly wrong, but still, nevertheless, they get right the fact that exercise is good for you. Yeah, that was one of the really nice surprises about doing research on this book. You know, Hippocrates, back in the 5th century BC, essentially had it right. He said, eating alone will not keep a man well. He must also take exercise. For food and exercise, while possessing opposite qualities, yet work together to produce health. Plato, you know, he uh, advocated moderate exercise every day. And Mercuriali himself, as a physician, recommended exercise, moderate exercise to maintain health. But what you were alluding to is absolutely true. While these thinkers and physicians had pretty sensible advice about exercise, they had a completely inaccurate, unscientific understanding of how the human body actually works. They still believed, or Mercuriali still believed, centuries later after Galen and Hippocrates, in the theory of the four humors, mm. which held that the body was composed of four humors or almost fluids that had to be kept in balance. And if one or another of them was out of balance, it threw the body into distemper. And it was from this that pretty primitive treatments like bloodletting and purging came about. So while Mercuriali had a lot of sensible things to say about exercise, it's all based on this completely inaccurate theory one that doesn't change until William Harvey's discovery of the circulation of blood by the beat of the heart in the 17th century. And it's only from then on that we begin to have a, a better and accurate understanding of the real workings of the human body and why exercise is good for you. Yeah, they were wrong about so much, but yet even that theory of humors, mm -hmm. the idea of balance is actually mm -hmm. still a good idea, whether it's physical or psychological, that, that notion of balance, which actually was an important one in the ancient world as well. How did you kind of balance the passions and reason as part of that? So I, I think I think we should still hold on to the notion of balance as an important one around around human well-being. Now, I want to explore some of the key themes that run through the book. So let's start with this. It feels to me as though the kind of case for fitness has three elements. So one is health, you know, makes us less likely to be sick and live longer. Secondly, is something around kind of utility, which is that if we're fit, we can work harder and better, or we can fight harder and better, or we can be more competitive at sport. So it's it's kind of a means to an end, as it were. And the third is the kind of aesthetic element, which is that we'll look beautiful if we've got finely tuned bodies. These elements are recurrent, but they've changed over time, haven't they? The balance of the health, utility, and aesthetic argument. <laughs> That's really true. I mean, the aesthetic quality was definitely important in antiquity. That was part of the appeal, part of the culture of exercise and athletics in ancient Greece and Rome. Utility comes into it more, I would say, later. You know, think of the 19th century and the reaction to the Industrial Revolution when there was a kind of global concern or fear, one might even say that people had become too sedentary in the move from farm to factory, to put it simplistically. And so there was a, a new kind of global concern about exercise, but it was different in that for the first time, women were encouraged and permitted to exercise alongside men, as well as children. This is when 
PE classes and physical education classes really, really started and became a part of daily life uh, and education around the world. Yeah, and I want to turn to women in, in a second, but there's kind of notion of utility, I guess, at various times in history, the notion that you needed to be fit was related to what you did. And, and very often, for example, just the kind of warrior class, they were the people who needed mm-hmm. to be fit. Women didn't need to be fit or certainly... Mm-hmm affluent women didn't need to be fit so that what is different today is the notion that fitness is good for everybody and we all need to be fit it was restricted much more at at various times historically that's right and you know one could argue that exercise started really you know back in the 10th century when it was just fitness training for war for Mm. hand-to-hand combat workouts so that men and boys would be stronger, ready for war, prepared to fight. That was the sole purpose behind fitness training. So one could argue that the roots of exercise go that far back. It changed with the founding of the Olympic Games in the 5th century, where athletic competition and sort of idealization of the athlete became so much a part of that culture. And then there was a trickle-down effect with gymnasiums in almost every town in the Greek empire and just everyday men, and it was only men and boys, exercising at these gyms. One difference between those gyms and the gyms today is that they exercised in the nude, oiled up and exercised in the nude. In fact, that's what the word gymnastics means. So you you talked about women a moment ago. That's another big shift, isn't it? That really in the first half of your book, almost exclusively talking about men, I'm sure. Well, I know because you say it, Mercuriali is not advising women to do exercise and, and get fit. But that, again, has has changed a lot in recent times. And there are, there are other heroes in your book. Jane Fonda, for example, makes an appearance. <laughs> Jane Fonda and a woman who I call the Jane Fonda of the 19th century, Catherine Beecher, an American and the sister of the novelist Harriet Beecher Stowe, She was really an advocate for exercise for women and wrote books, traveled around the country, lectured, demonstrated, and advocated working exercise into your housework and into your domestic life. So she was a powerful advocate. And, you know, this all kind of intersected with the women's rights movements and the suffragette movement of the 19th century. One of my favorite quotes in the book comes from Susan B. Anthony, who talked about the importance of the bicycle, which was invented in the 19th century. And it was Susan B. Anthony who said, the bicycle has done more for the emancipation of women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel, the picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. It's interesting you mentioned kind of invention because my sense is that in recent years, it's often been women who tended to be innovators in terms of new ways of getting fit, rather kind of more willing to kind of explore. This isn't just a kind of stoical, sweaty process, but let's have some fun. Let's do some dancing. Let's do it together. Let's listen to some music. That seems to be something that particularly women have added to the ways in which we think about fitness. I think that's really true. You mentioned Jane Fonda. She was really so groundbreaking. You know, I'm 61. I grew up in the 70s and in 80s. I remember when she suddenly came on the scene with her videotapes. And as I worked on this book, I knew I wanted to research Jane Fonda and look at that work. And I think I did it a little bit skeptically, like wondering if it would seem kind of campy. 
but I actually looked at the original videotapes and original workout books, and I was really, really impressed. Those workouts that she had on her videos, you know, they really are great workouts, and she was a great teacher, and they haven't really dated at all. One could pop in that videotape or watch it online, actually, and you'd get a great workout today. But she was groundbreaking for making it possible for women to exercise at home, don't have to join a gym, don't have to hire a babysitter. And she incorporated using music and dance, which was part of her own background. She was trained in ballet. So it was natural for her, I think, to bring in music and dance into her aerobic workouts. So look, here we are, two 61-year-old fitness freaks. We need to look at the other side of the argument, Bill, don't we? We could we could just sit here, you know, in a mutual admiration society. But let's look at a couple of the kind of critiques of our obsession with exercise. So the first is a kind of the narcissism mm-hmm. of fitness, that in, in the end, it's kind of somehow linked to a kind of egocentricity, linked also to a kind of denial of death. It's a kind of mania for us to resist nature and the fact that in the end it doesn't matter how hard we work every morning death will come knocking you know narcissism has been part of this hasn't it well for sure i mean you know one of the reasons we exercise is to look good naked i mean let's face it (laughs) that is definitely one of the reasons and it's also true that it's been proven indisputably that exercise is good for you that it extends life. You will likely live longer if you get regular exercise. But then again, life is short and sometimes you never know. So when people ask me about getting motivation for exercise, how do you get motivated to exercise? One thing I do say is don't do it because you think it will make you live longer. You never know. Exercise for how it makes you feel now, right now, in your body, about your body, about your life. It should be something you enjoy. And again, this is something the ancients kind of intuitively understood. It was Galen in the second century, a Roman physician who said, in my opinion, the best exercises of all are those which are able not only to exert the body, but also delight the soul. Hmm. So I think that notion of delighting the soul or finding enjoyment in the moment, whether you're into running or swimming or dancing or bicycling, that should be really part of it. And I think there's evidence, isn't there, Bill, that I certainly, I'm a runner, that that actually running with somebody else mm-hmm. is is more beneficial than, than doing it on your own. So I think, you know, the other thing about, about exercise is trying to do it with other people if you can. Yeah. I mean, there's a social aspect to exercise that's always been part of it. And I really noticed it during the pandemic, during the lockdown days, especially, you know, we were all sort of isolated in our apartments and gyms were closed, but there was an intuitive sort of natural gathering that would take place in parks and open public spaces. I live in New York. I'm sure you saw the same thing in London or elsewhere. People just kind of naturally coming together, sometimes with group fitness classes led by an aerobics teacher or a yoga teacher out there on the grass, socially distanced. But often I just saw people coming together, doing their own individual exercise or maybe with a friend and gathering in one spot. And I just thought that was such an interesting reaction to the pandemic, that even though gyms were closed, gyms being almost like 
community or social centers, there was still that social aspect that drew people to exercise together. Yeah, no, indeed. And, in, and what happened in the UK is that one person in particular who, I can't remember his name, it'll come to me in a minute, but put his fitness classes online and he became a kind of national hero because, because even if we were at home, we were all doing it together. Yeah, that's so true. And that was such an interesting adaptation. Some people realized they didn't need a gym. <laughs> Even when gyms reopened, they didn't want to uh, be members again because they could take classes via YouTube or via Instagram Live. And I think that's, that's a really interesting adaptation that I might not have expected. Yeah, Joe Wicks, he was called, and he he became mm-hmm. a national a national hero, and, and and his small business ballooned. So, and I think that was just people wanted to feel, even if they were locked in their home, that they were involved in a common in, endeavor. Exactly. I guess another kind of critique of the emphasis on exercise is the danger that it leads to a kind of victim blaming when it comes to ill health and inequalities in health, because it leads to a kind of sense, well. We are all individually responsible for how healthy we are, and therefore it can lead to a downplaying of all the social factors which are so significant in determining our health and well-being. Do you think it's it's something we've got to be careful about, that we don't end up in a position that kind of says, well, anybody who's not made the choices that you and I might make every morning to an hour hasn't, hasn't got the choices that you and I have got, the freedom to do that, should somehow be blamed for the fact they're not getting fit and staying fit? Yeah, I absolutely agree. There's a danger to that and that one has to check one's privilege for sure. That's why it's important to encourage people to exercise in any way they they want. You know, it doesn't have to take place at a gym. It could be dancing in your apartment. But yeah, I think that is something that we all have to be aware of. Yeah, and it's really important when we think about how we tackle those health inequalities that we we think really hard about how it is we can encourage people to get involved. One of my favorite schemes, which I don't think you have in America actually, is Parkrun. Do you know about Parkrun, Bill? I don't. So let me tell you the story of Parkrun. It started by a guy who, who came here from South Africa. He was a bit depressed. His relationship had broken up and he wasn't able to run. He was a runner, but he had an injury. So he contacted a few of his friends. He said, look, if you come to, I think it was Bushy Park, he said, if you come to Bushy Park, I will lay out a course and I'll time you. And so they came along. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it was just in Bushy Park in one place on the outskirts of London. Now, there are thousands and thousands of park runs all across the UK and the world. And it, I mean, it's an amazing phenomenon. And it's all run by volunteers. So Paul Sinton Hewitt was the name of the guy who, who, who founded it. Like the RSA gave him a prize a few years ago. So, you know, I, if where I live in South London, I can cycle to four or five park runs. And at Saturday morning at nine o'clock, I turn up. I don't have to pay. It's £10 to join, but you join for life. I then run the 5K. I swipe a little barcode that you get sent. And then I get sent my times. Wow. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so finally, Bill, I can't end without asking for a few kind of fitness stories from you. So, so you know, you've had this commitment for all these years. What would you say to somebody listening to this who, who kind of has reached that point and think, no, I'm going to start doing some exercise? What tips would you give them? Well, I would say, first of all, think of exercise as synonymous with movement, that any kind of movement is great. If you can't or don't want to join a gym, for example, you could get off your bus two or three stops early and walk the rest of the way home. 
and call that exercise. That's exercise. And I would emphasize what I said earlier, you know, do it for how it makes you feel now, how it makes you feel about your body and about your life. Try different forms of exercise. There are so many different ways you can exercise. The park runs you describe sound amazing, but it might be bicycling or it might be dancing or uh, lifting or boxing. I certainly tried just about every form of exercise as I worked on the book. So the book also, in a certain way, becomes my own history of exercise chronicled throughout the book. I think the thing, I, the tip I would give people, which is really a self-admonition because I got it wrong for so many years, is I'm one of these people who just who can't bear kind of preparing for things properly. I just chuck on my running shoes and, and run as fast as I can. And I didn't really bother with the kind of stretching and that kind of thing. And actually, because I got an injury and I had to go to see a physio and the physio showed me how to stretch. And I, I went to the physio because I thought I, I was going to not be able to run. But actually, the stretches they made me do mean that I've become much, much faster. And I wish that I'd started doing them much earlier. And similarly with swimming, I've spent years and years and years swimming badly and not really enjoying it. And I finally now signed up to have some swimming lessons because actually a little bit of an investment in technique and the right warm up and these kind of things, they can make a big difference, can't they? I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, I'm a swimmer and people often ask me about swimming. They say, oh, they used to swim. They would love to swim again. But, you know, they just get in the pool and they're exhausted within a couple of minutes. And I suggest often take some swimming lessons, even just a couple of lessons and a coach can help you improve your technique. You know, one of the sort of biggest mistakes in swimming is that people kick so hard to stay afloat and to propel themselves forward that they get exhausted really fast. And a swim coach or swim teacher can teach you how to um, kick more efficiently so you don't get exhausted so quickly and how to refine your stroke so that you can swim longer and better and really enjoy it more. I did it. You know, when I got together with Oliver, he was such a swimmer. I had swum since childhood, but I, once I got in the pool, I realized that just being fit or having, you know, a muscular body was not enough. I really needed some technique and I took swimming lessons or coaching sessions for, you know, six months or so. Yeah, I know. It really makes a difference. I, I thought I would never get onto 20 minutes for 5k, you know, at my age. And then I started doing stretching and then I started doing interval training and, you know, I'm down to 19 minutes. And it is, I'll tell you one thing at our age, to get your best ever performance. I mean, it is wonderful. That is that is why we start to think we may become immortal. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So, Bill, brilliant book, Sweat, A History of Exercise. I can strongly recommend it. Tell me just before we finish, what are you working on next? Well, you know, I'm also a photographer. I've done one volume of my New York street photography. I'm now working on a volume of um, my portraiture. I do portraits in my apartment studio. I'm a believer in the theory of crop rotation. <laughs> so I go between back and forth between writing and photography. I'm also a big believer in rest, and maybe that's a, a good way to wrap up. I think with exercise, one has to remember that taking a break, taking a day off, giving your body a chance to rest is also really important. Absolutely. Bill Hayes, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now... 
Thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 